Welcome to Education Futures Podcast. I'm John Moravec. And I'm Kelly Moravec. The Education Futures Reads Book Chat is an online discussion that meets the first Saturday of each month through Facebook Livestream. We start at 10 a.m. Minnesota or U.S. Central Time, and they typically last for about an hour. In February of 2017, we discussed Peter Hartkamp's book, Beyond Coercive Education, a plea for the realization of the rights of the child in education. He critiques the underlying assumptions about education and brings them to the forefront for discussion. As a parent, Peter is faced with what he saw were adverse effects of the education system on his children. In response, he started three highly innovative schools in the Netherlands. To be able to do this, he has, over the past 15 years, developed an in-depth knowledge of education, education law, and human rights. Peter Hartkamp is active on the Council of the European Democratic Education Community, otherwise known as UDEC, and he gives talks and workshops on education and human rights in various countries around the world. Hi, Peter. Hi, John. Thank you very much. Peter, to get us started, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, yeah, a little bit more, yes. Uh, when I, we lived in the Middle East and then we came back to Holland and our children went to a, like a good school here. Uh, and that went on for a few years. And then my oldest daughter, when she was eight, she said she'd rather be dead than um, go to school. And that really, as parents, made us think. And then we started to look at the school and socially she was doing really well. Uh, but it was the education itself, the way the, the stuff was taught at school, which really made her ex- extremely unhappy. And then we start digging into reading into the system and how does the system work. And then we found out the more questions we start, we had, the more questions we got, basically. And then we really went into it. And then we finally said, well, this is a system we don't want to expose our children to. And then we started looking for alternatives. And that's how we came to start three schools in the Netherlands. Your book is very much based on a personal story or a story from your family. Can you share a bit about it? Yeah, well, the, the personal story is really what it triggered. And of course, the book is then like a, a much deeper analysis of uh, the, the underlying assumptions for the education system. And like I said, when my daughter said she'd rather be dead than in school, uh, that really was the big trigger for us because there was a big wake-up call. Uh, because as parents, we never thought about education um, before that. And the only experience we had was our own school. Uh, but we, that's more or less we tried to forget about that. Um, and our other two daughters had about the same experience. It was not as bad as the oldest. The oldest was really good at showing why uh, it didn't work for her. But when we started, this, for instance, with the first school, then the other two, they were eight at the time as a twin. And after half a year, they started to ask questions again. And they were very curious again. And then we suddenly we started to realize, but they always asked many, many questions until about the age of five. And then it completely stopped with asking questions and so their curiosity was completely gone and we thought how is it possible that uh, because it went very gradually we didn't notice it at the time but when it came back we suddenly realized it and said oh but this is horrible but how can you learn something when you you're not curious in your journey you created a few different schools how did that go the first school we started, uh, like we did the analysis for the education system, we, we, we read like anything we could lay our hands on, on learning strategies, uh, flow in learning, um, uh, learning styles, everything. And then we, we put them all together in a systems diagram. And in the systems diagram, we saw that like 13 of the 13 variables there were, only three were child related and the other 10 were uh, external related. And the, what we found was that the, the best predictive uh, indicator for success at school is the perception of the teacher about what a child can do. 
Uh, and then we thought, well, this is really like this is really scary because if the if the teacher has a bad impression of your child, uh, it will do bad, and if you have a positive impression, it will do good. And so it's like a sausage factory, and there's no relation between how children go in when they're like five or six years old and how they come out when they're twelve. And then we decided, well, we don't want to expose our children to a system like this. And that's, that was the easy bit. And it took us about two years to find out that we didn't want the regular system anymore. And then we started lear- looking at concepts like uh, um, flow in learning, uh, child-directed education, um, all those type of things. Uh, and it was really difficult because in all these types of education we found, it is still the adults determining uh, what children have to do. And I said, but how as an adult can you look in the head of a child and know what's good for a child? It's always an assumption uh, and there's no real evidence to base that on. And then we came across the Sudbury Valley School uh, or the website. And I can still remember I looked at the website for the first time and said, no, this is not possible. This is crazy. And then a few weeks later, we looked again and I said, well, not sure. This is this sounds totally crazy still. And then my wife ordered a few books and we started reading the books and that, that really felt like coming home. Uh, like really, uh, this is a school I would have liked to go myself. Um, and then of course the, 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 the challenge was, Subway Valley School already was around for like 40 years almost. But there was no, not such a school in the Netherlands. And then we thought, okay, well, if it's not there, then we have to do it ourselves. So then we found a group of people and we founded our first school in 2003. Uh, and that really worked very well for our children. And then for us as parents, it didn't work that well because the, for the government and especially the school inspectors and also politicians in parliament, uh, they found it very, very scary. So they, then the school inspection came to our school uh, and they looked very negative at it. Like they, they, they couldn't see anything they recognized from a regular school. And that's, that's where the, then the problem started. So they gave a bad inspection uh, then parents got prosecuted. Because in uh, like continental Europe or in Europe as a whole, the Netherlands, the education system in the Netherlands is seen as very liberal. Um, and it, in a, that's true in a relative sense, but in a in a absolute sense, I think from a scale from from zero to ten, uh, but ten is the most liberal. I think the Netherlands still probably has like a four or five, maybe. Uh, so in absolute sense, there's there's still so much more you can do. How did the government respond, or how did they take to it? Well, the, the current, if you look at mainstream education, which basically, if you look at the historical roots of the education, it was for the first time. Um, uh, introduced on a mass scale in, in, in Prussia uh, it started around the 1800s um, and Prussia at the time was, was a dictatorship with the king uh, ruling, ruling Prussia uh, and they needed an education system to get obedient soldiers and, and, and workmen and uh, civil servants and the whole system was geared to the, to the needs of Prussia in those days uh, and after Napoleon was defeated, uh, and Prussia play, played a big role in it, of course, uh, a lot of other countries in, in Europe, especially the more liberal countries like the UK, uh, but also in the United States, uh, they actually took, took on this Prussian education system. Uh, and the Prussian education system is about, um, it's basically it's about, it's a coercive system uh, where, where, the, where the government or the school determines what children should learn, how to instill discipline, uh, the class, the year class system, uh, the fixed curriculum, 
state exams, um, state certified teachers. Uh, and the system, although over the last 50 years, a lot of on, the, on, a, on, a, on a small scale or on an operational level, uh, things have changed and, and, and have been tweaked. Uh, the, the, the essence of the system itself hasn't changed over in the last 200 years. So we still have a, like a coercive system, uh, which um, uh, which doesn't fit the needs of all the children, basically. What did you learn along the way? Yeah, we started with the first school, and then it took took the, the the government because, and that's basically the, the previous question didn't really finish that. Uh, the school we started is based on a completely different paradigm as as the current mainstream education system, and that's I think where people have a difficulty in understanding it. Also, school inspectors. Um, then this, the the government put a lot of pressure on the school, and then a lot of people got scared because parents got prosecuted, uh, and people wanted to change the school. So then we left to start uh, the second school in 2007. And then we end up in the court cases straight away because in those days the relationship with, with the government was like horrible. Uh, and then we went through all these court cases. And to me, the reason we went through the court cases because it was the last protection we had to say, well, we have to, to the law has to protect us, otherwise we can't do anything. And we thought it would be a very easy win um, because if you read the, the education laws, they're okay, they're not that clear, but we, we satisfied all the laws, we thought. Uh, and then we did all the court cases, and we lost every single case. We went to the highest administrative court, to the criminal court. We went to the European uh, Court of Human Rights. And we were thrown out everywhere. And in the end, we had to close the school in 2014. And then I started to realize from what, what, what's happening here. How can it, if it's so clear, how can we lose this, uh, this all these cases? And then I found out that... in all the discussions on education that nobody looks at the underlying assumptions or almost the beliefs of the education system uh, because everybody accepts the system as it is and nobody challenges the system at the systems level uh, and that's when I started to that's why I wrote a book basically to look at the things and say well what's happening here uh, I need to we need to make it much clearer and get like more of an awareness of what's happening for instance if you to, to come back to the book, uh, for the myths, one of the th things you see in, we see in Holland, but also in other countries, on every discussion on education, if something goes wrong in education, the, 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 the base reaction is to do more of the same, or to do more. Uh, so things don't go well, you do more testing, uh, we add stuff to the curriculum, we send them to school earlier, we send them longer to school. Um, so it looks like the underlying belief is more is better. Whereas there's very strong evidence that less is better. Um, and for, like in the 30s, I think it was Chicago, uh, a school superintendent, Benazet, uh, did an experiment on a number of schools in, in, in poor neighborhoods. So that's why nobody bothered about the experiments. But he gave like uh, a number of classes at a number of schools, uh, no um, arithmetic from class one to class five for five years in a row. And he replaced it with philosophy and then logical thinking. And in year six, uh, they got arithmetic again. Uh, and they did a little bit worse on the on the, the arithmetic exercises, but they did, did much better on the arithmetic uh, questions, which involved logic, logical thinking. And about half a year later, they did similar as the other classes on the arithmetic. And they were still much better on the, on the things... Uh, needing logic and, and uh, uh, insights. 
so basically, the, if you look at it, it was a very large experiment. If you look at the experiment, the, the basic message is, uh, if you want children to learn arithmetic, you shouldn't get, teach them arithmetic for at least five years. Uh, so less is better. And the same, for instance, you see in, in Christchurch in 2011, I think, there was a big earthquake and all the schools were destroyed. Uh, so the children going to do the final exams at secondary school uh, couldn't go to school for like four months in a row. And the New Zealand Qualifications Authority was really scared. So, well, they, they're going to fail their exams. They can't go to universities. Universities get empty. The schools get full. You need to do something. So they developed this earthquake correction factor for the exams. Uh, to beef up the exam results so the children could still pass. Um, but they didn't, need, they didn't need it because the students actually, the, the, the exam results were the highest ever. So again, four months not going to school showed for, uh, gave better results to the exams. And I'm not saying you can like apply this worldwide on a global scale, uh, but I think we need to rethink what's happening at schools and why we are doing it. And we need to have a dialogue on, on what, what's happening here. And go away from from all the standard thinking uh, because it doesn't work. What would you say to parents who are considering changing their children's educational experience from a more traditional public school to a democratic school to alleviate their fears or nervousness about something so different from the form of education they experienced themselves? Uh, yeah, that's the question. We are parents at our school are are are, are trying to get to grips with as well. Uh, the question is, I think, is is uh, you have first you have to, the question is, do you trust your children? Do you think your children are capable and can, can, um, can take care of themselves? Um, and secondly, I think you also have to think around, uh, people see that like with new forms and experiments, they see that as a risk often, but what is the risk of, of the current mainstream education system? I, I looked at it in my book, uh, like everybody knows, there's a lot of bullying at schools. Like in, in the Netherlands, it's like 10% of children is bullied. Uh, so that, that, that's not a risk. That's for sure the 10% will be bullied. If you look at the, um, the, the amount of psychopharma uh, uh, children are using to, 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 to stay in the system, it's, it's tremendous. It's also about 10%. Also, if you look at the... Like 10% of the adult population in the Netherlands is functional analphabetic. And I think in the U.S. it's like 14%. So these are children who actually went to state schools for, for, for 10 to 14 years, uh, and they can't read or write when they leave school. So the risks of the current system, I think, are enormous. And compared to those risks, the risks of democratic schools are, are minor, I think. Sophie Christofi asks, how do you fund your school? How did you get it started? Well, it doesn't work. <laughs> no, it's it's a big. If you the, I think the question is, if you if you in a current in a system and you want to start something new, uh, then the people who want to finance it are not queuing up. So we we started our school uh, and it's a private school. It's it's funded by the by the tuition of the parents, and that's the only way we could do it. And this is all the more a problem because in the Netherlands there's no tra uh, tradition at all of private education. Uh, so 99.9% .9 of the schools are completely state-funded. So this is also breaking uh, the tradition and people, most people think education should be paid by the government, not by the parents. So we started the school uh, funded by 
the parents. And the way we could do it is that staff doesn't earn very much. So the, the staff is actually running the schools and making the schools possible. Uh, having said that, I think uh, the relationship with the government in the Netherlands is now like much, much better than it was in the past because they start to understand what we're doing. Uh, they see that students who leave the school can also go to university, uh, find a job, uh, and that's quite uh, that's actually like quite normal people. Um, so this, the the anxiety with with the government is 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 gone now. Uh, so the next phase is trying to see whether we can actually get the school fund state funded because uh, at the current moment uh, we are we are. Uh, we are in competition with a fully state-funded system, and but uh, the parents have to pay them for themselves, and that's just like a very unequal uh, competition. Uh, but we're getting there. It, it really takes time, uh, but I think within the next five to ten years, uh, they'll be become part of the mainstream system. Uh, like for instance, in Israel, I think all the democratic schools in Israel are already state-funded and part of the state system. Your book takes a perspective that mainstream schooling violates fundamental human rights for children. Can you explain? Yeah, that will probably take more than an hour, but I'll try to do it brief. Um, a few years ago, I also went to the World Conference of the Rights to Education and the Rights in Education in, in Brussels. And this, especially the latter part of the Rights in Education triggered my thinking. Um, like human uh, education is seen as a human right for children. Uh, and at the moment... So, so all governments are making it possible for children to go to school, and that, that works, like most children are going to school. But as soon as they cross the door of the school, uh, nobody's thinking about human rights anymore, because then uh, at the moment they're in school, everybody thinks their right to education is fulfilled and school will take care of that. But if you look at the human rights and the children's rights, which are basically the, children, the rights of the child are, are human rights for people under 18, basically they're the same rights. Uh, if you, for instance, look at the right of being free from physical uh, violence, uh, uh, bullying is phys physical violence uh, or, or psychological violence. But children in school have almost no privacy. Uh, if you look at the right to, for children to play and to recreate, uh, at, at schools they're kept busy all the time. They have to do what the schools tell them to do. And not only at, at school, but also in the evenings and in the weekends. Uh, also, like exam periods or test periods are often planned just after the holidays, so children can spend their holidays preparing for the exam. So the free, ch the free time of children is severely limited in schools. And if you look at all the human rights for children, if you uh, look at what's happening in school, most of them are violated. And even so, the, the, the right to uh, education, uh, if 10% of the children leave schools functional analphabetics, uh, how well is the right to education served? And also a lot of the, the children are, are underperforming at school. Uh, the schools in Holland, I don't know how it's in other, other countries, uh, but quite often quite smart children and don't do that well at schools and, and go down into the uh, like lower level education after school. Rika in Denmark is wondering, why is it important for kids to have freedom in and control over their education? So it's important to have control over their own lives, basically. Yes. Yeah, well, I think this is, this, this, there's two, two angles to this, I think. Firstly, like, the children are, are, are human, too. Um, so I think what, what right is there or why should we treat children like, like almost like slaves or like prisoners? Can we deny those rights in the first place? 
uh, apart from whether children need them or not. But can we deny uh, human beings the right to decide for themselves what to do? Uh, and secondly, it's uh, to me it's not logical either because when children are like 18 or, or, or adult, have an adult status legally, we expect them to run their own lives and to make their own choices. Um, and to me, um, the preparation to make your own choices by sitting in a system where you're told by others what to do, uh, doesn't you prepare for, for a life as an adult? I think you should be the, the best way to, 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 to learn to take responsibility and to make your own choices and to make your own mistakes, because mistakes is where you learn most from probably, uh, is to, to do it in practice. Um, having, be, having been denied to those rights and the opportunity to learn that way, uh, how, how can you learn in the first place? Mainstream education evolves so slowly. While it would be ideal for schools to evolve to be democratic across the board, that would be such a huge undertaking and take a lot of time. Do you see any positive outcomes in a compromise between mainstream schools and democratic education? Meaning, is there any way for mainstream schools to incorporate democratic principles while maintaining some of their current structures? Yeah, the first one I will say I completely agree with Peter Gray. I think to me, um, for children to, to, to run their own lives, they have to be the full be fully responsible for their own actions and own choices. And to me, responsibility is being responsible is something like being pregnant. Uh, you can't be half pregnant. Either you are pregnant or, or you are responsible or you're not. Uh, having said so, there are known uh, some experiments uh, in, 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 in regular education where children weren't given the full freedom, uh, but did have serious influence in the running of the school uh, the management of the school, uh, the rules in the schools, uh, rule breaking, uh, choice of, of teachers and those type of things. Um, and, and there is an old English uh, or an English school inspector, uh, Derry Hannum, and he ran an experiment in his own class. And he ran his class as a democratic uh, community, basically. And that, and that worked as well. So given that there is a class and there is a curriculum and the school expects some things, there's still a lot of things you can decide together uh, and to make the choice in the school. And he did for the, for the English Ministry of Education, he did some research uh, to look at schools which have uh, more student influence than other schools. And one of the preliminary findings of his research was that schools where children have more influence in, in their own environment, uh, that correlates pretty well with, with also with higher results on, on standards, tests and those type of things. So although I think it's not ideal, I think uh, you can achieve a lot also in the regular education. Um, and I think uh, that's why I put in my book for, for human rights. I think if you start getting serious about human rights in schools, about, about privacy, about self-determination, uh, and about all those things, then you can start a little bit. And once you start doing it, you can do the next step and the next step and the next step. And I think if you start to go in that, that direction, there's probably no way to stop it anymore. Uh, because human rights are so fundamental and I think we, we can't do without them in schools anymore. You spend a good portion of your text exposing myths about schools. Can you share some of those? Uh, yeah, maybe one, for instance, like uh, teaching is learning. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of people think that if you teach children enough, then they'll, they'll, they'll learn and, 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 and that will work very well. Uh, but if you, there's a lot of research also when you look at the more children are taught uh, and the more high-stake testing is, is happening, actually the less they're learning. 
Uh, also, if you look at what, what's learning, um, that learning and teaching is not the same thing. Uh, teaching is a, is a, is a delivery mechanism to, to give information to, to children or whoever you want to give it to. Uh, learning is something which happens in your own head. It's the recipient um, of the teaching who learns or doesn't learn. Um, and also, the, 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 a lot of the learning, um, I think it was actually was huge uh, uh, on invisible learning, it was like like 80 or 90 percent of the learning happens invisibly, and only 10 percent is is due to formal teaching situations. So to me, the more the more teaching, there's the less the less learning happens at school. Sophie added a comment. She says, "Also, adultism disrupts in school the power adults have over children." And she continues, "Schools are authoritarian. How do we change that culture?" Now, related to that, I'd like to know, what is the role of power in education in schools? called my book Beyond Coercive Education. A lot of the, the power in school uh, is, is, uh, is, is used to force children to do things. Adults determine uh, what children need to do. Uh, where children are denied power. So I think the, the, if you want to give children a, a choice and a, and a responsibility to, to, to sort their own lives and determine what they were learning, uh, forcing them in a, in, a, in a different way is, is, is counterproductive. And I think the, 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 we should, should really get away from and facilitate learning rather than instilling and forcing learning. Uh, maybe coming back to the... Uh, an underlying assumption, which I also described in one of, as one of my myths, is do children need guidance? That's, I think, a very, very strong um, thinking with, with most adults, also because of their own schooling, uh, that you can't leave children to sort out on their own what to do, but they need to be guided. But, but guidance is coercion as well. Uh, and children, if you look at children from, from the ages of zero to four, uh, we're not guiding them to learn to speak or to learn to walk. They, they want to do that themselves because they're, they have an, an internal drive to do so. Um, so they don't need guidance for that. We, we, we are there to facilitate and, and be there around and, and we, we help them. Uh, but we're not telling them what words to learn or, or how to walk. So I think power, uh, using power against children is, 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 is uh, well, it's a violation of their human rights, but it's also very counterproductive. So I think we should really completely, and that's, that's why, for, for instance, I used the example of democratic schools, because their children have power themselves uh, to take care of themselves. Uh, I think the, the current way, the current power structures of schools is, 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 is devastating. Following up a little bit, what is the role of trust in education in schools? Yeah, I think trust, trust is the most most critical ingredient uh, for, for children to learn. I think uh, you can't learn if people distrust you or, or don't trust you to, 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 to follow your own trail, basically. Nellie sent in a question. She is wondering, given the way that adults are raised, how do they learn to trust their children? This is very different, isn't it? The question is that the, the, the challenge with trust is if you don't trust your children and you start trusting them, you first have to trust them before you see you can trust them. Uh, so it's, you first have to trust them and then you see the results. Uh, so that's difficult. If you look at my own children, we, we start trusting our children um, and then we saw what, what was happening. And then we found out because we trusted them, they, they, they were much more capable and much more confident in doing things. And then you're going into a, 
like a positive reinforcing circle. But of course, you have to start somewhere, and that's that's the that's a tricky thing. What, if any, stumbling blocks have you seen in students learning in your schools, and why did they occur? There, I think two two types of stumbling blocks. Some stumbling blocks for the for the students themselves. Uh, I think students who come at the school when they're like four years old, they're still really confident and they learned a lot over the, the, the four years before and they don't no problem they just go on in, in, in the school. Uh, the students which come from regular schools who have had like a history at a regular school, uh, they have to switch from a, a, a system where the school tells them what to do to, to, to self-determination. And that's a big switch, and that's that's really uh, that's a big challenge. And some students can make that overnight; they flick a switch and they go for it. Uh, other students uh, can take like half a year, or a year, or even longer to 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 make that switch. So that's very very hard. Uh, other challenge is the parents. Uh, children at our school can learn, but if the parents don't trust them to do that, um, it's big. That, that's a big challenge because if you are at school and you can determine for yourself what to do if you come home and your father or your mother tells you well what did you learn today and blah blah uh, that, that keeps reinforcing the message uh, I don't trust it I, I, uh, you're not doing enough uh, and it's very very difficult for those students especially for younger students sometimes we see with older students they they grow independent and they, they can separate school and, and home um, but that's that's a big challenge and essentially what we say often about school uh, is that the school is, is uh, suitable for all children, but it's not suitable for all parents. Uh, given that if parents can't trust their children, then the school won't work for the children. Okay, you've been an advocate of the Sudbury model. What are the more compelling alternative approaches that you've seen or been in contact with? And to be more specific, beyond just the Sudbury model. Uh, I think homeschooling is, is, a, is a very compelling, uh, especially the unschooling of, of homeschooling can be very compelling. Um, also, and I want to say that the reason I talk a lot about like democratic schools and suburb education is because that's what I focused on and that's what I'm working in. Uh, and it also made me realize because the paradigm is so completely different, uh, what I start looking at the system of traditional education. Uh, I don't want to have Sudbury schools for, like, for all children and force all children to go to Sudbury schools because that won't work either. I think the most important thing for, for schools is that we have a diverse education system or a diverse ecology, as you call it, uh, where everybody can find his or her choice, both parents and students. Um, so I think it's, it's diversity is, the, this is really important. And if you go away from the coercion, uh, diversity will will, will, will spring up anyway it will come much 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 more diverse uh, also I think any system like for instance and in, I put it in my book as well in Norway they have to for secondary schools they have to like st students associations which have a lot of influence on the school and the school system which are consultant about the curriculum of their schools uh, if students are bullied over there, uh, they can uh, they can, can file an official complaint with their, their student association, which then can put the complaint forward to the director. And if the director doesn't take definitive action on the complaint, um, he can be criminally prosecuted and go to jail for two years. Uh, so then that's where students have real power uh, to do something about it. 
So I think if you look at worldwide, there there, there are small pockets of, of really interesting, um, uh, small, interesting, novel, different models. Uh, and I think those models should be much more available, much broader uh, to much many more people. So I think it's to, up to anybody to to find what you really want and how you do it and see how you can realize it, uh, whatever it is. But as long as we teach, treat children like human beings and give them choices for themselves, uh, I think that's the key thing here. So it occurs to me that we ask our son what he learned at school all the time. What should I ask him instead to engage in conversation about his learning in a way that values his capacity to be in charge of his own learning and stop reinforcing the idea that he must be told what to do in order for it to be learning? Yeah, my, my question would be if you, like if you talk to a colleague or, or a good friend, um, would you ask the same questions? Would you ask uh, like a friend, well, what did you learn today? Or, 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 or how are you doing this? I think what we should get away from from uh, the children almost are defined. Children at school are defined by the fact that they are school children, uh, and we we treat them. If you if you talk to a younger kid, you say, "Well, how is the school? Which grade are you in? How are you doing?" Uh, and all those questions. Um, I think it's much more important to be interested in the person itself, uh, and ask, them, "Well, what are you doing? And what are your interests in?" and Via that uh, route, uh, you can get much, much more rich conversations and much more interesting conversations, and and the learning will follow anyway. I think also that uh, at our school we we don't talk about learning. We almost see learning as a byproduct uh, of the things we do. So we talk about interesting things, uh, interesting things people did, uh, things we are interested in, uh, and the learning follows. But that's not we're not talking explicitly about learning. The same as my own children. I mean, I, like, I never ask a question like that or never talk to them like that. It's more about what are you doing, uh, how are you, uh, 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 how are you feeling, those, those kind of questions. Which always gives you a very, very, well, depends, of course, if they don't want to talk, but uh, most of the time gives you a much richer conversation and a much better contact. Peter, you shared a provocative question with me the other day. You said, should we call children children? Because we call children children, uh, we exclude them almost as a separate entity in society. Um, and I think the whole point of my book is to treat children like, like humans, like children are humans too. Uh, but the sheer fact that we call them children almost separates them from that. Um, so my, I think it would be much better actually if we forget about the, 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 the qualification child uh, and just talk about humans and talk about people. Uh, the th- thing that would make it much simpler. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Peter. You're welcome. Now that you've listened to this interview, why not earn an hour of continuing professional education? After all, you've already done half the work. Just go to educationfutures.com learn and sign up for the Moodle course that corresponds with this episode. After you post your thoughts in response to the questions we have for you in the Sound Off Forum, you can download your certificate of completion. It's free, and it's our gift to you for listening and for supporting us. Again, visit educationfutures.com learn to earn your free continuing professional education credit. At Education Futures, we provide research, workshops, and advising for schools, governments, and other organizations that want to change the world for the better. We believe that education and our approaches to human development need both an innovation and a revolution. We look at the big picture from a systems perspective and question, What are we educating for? 
What does a global citizen of the 21st century or even the 22nd century look like? And when we start looking hard at these questions, we realize that we need to focus on how to learn, not what to learn. And this refocusing on the how requires us to develop more meaningful ecology of solutions. We are ambitious. We want to transform schools into vibrant, visionary, hard-charging, front-running, and value-creating centers of excellence that everybody be proud to attend, work for, and collaborate with. We practice what we preach. We advocate for open dialogue and networking, and we share everything we've learned openly to the greatest extent possible. And we try to have fun as well when we engage communities of educators in our workshops and research. To learn more, visit us at educationfutures.com. You can also write to me personally at john at educationfutures.com. Or me at kelly at educationfutures.com. This episode of the Education Futures podcast is made possible through the support of our wonderful listeners, and especially the folks who write us, provide feedback, insights, and ideas for future episodes. You can learn more about this series at educationfutures.com slash podcast. If you would like to chat with us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at edfutures and on Facebook at educationfutures. Email us your stories. Keeping conversations about the future of education going depends on you. We would love for you to share your stories, thoughts, opinions, and ideas for use in upcoming podcasts. Please email us at infoeducationfutures.com and visit us at educationfutures.com to engage in the discussion involving learning and the future of education. You can find me on Twitter. I am at Morvec. And I'm at Kelly Killorn. Thank you, and we look forward to continuing the conversation with you in our upcoming podcasts. Thanks for listening. 